As a Papuan Australian woman, I want to start this podcast by acknowledging that I am a settler on this land that I live, work and create on. I acknowledge there are ongoing native title cases on this land today due to the impacts of colonisation. I want to pay my respects to the many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples of this country and to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi listeners, thanks for tuning in to part two in this episode with our cultural inclusion educators. Previously, we heard from Cecilia and Jackie about how they enter the education industry. So let's jump in now to hear about how Ranu journeyed into the sector. I think for me, um, certainly when I was in high school, I wanted to be a midwife. And so I wanted to be... um, at that beginning point, because I just loved babies. I just wanted to be with babies. And I thought that was the only, that was the only possibility was um, through midwifery. Um, And then one morning I discovered, I was watching a documentary on TV, I think one morning waiting for my brothers and sisters to be ready to go to school. And there was a birth scene and I realized that there would be blood. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, I can't do that. (laughs) But I didn't know what else there was. I didn't. I, I didn't really want to be a primary school teacher. I um, certainly didn't want to be a high school teacher. I just kind of floated around a bit, not knowing what else there was. I was also a very good flute player, and so my other option was becoming a professional flautist. Um, but that would have been a very lonely life, I think. Um, and um, it was actually my dad. Put me, pushed me towards, not pushed me, but nudged me towards education um, and did all the paperwork for me and filled all my uni application <laughs> and enrolled me in uni to do, to do um, education. Um, and so I just did that and because that's, that's what you did. You've, you've kind of did, did what you were told. And it wasn't until I came out with my Bachelor of Education and found myself working. Uh, the year that I graduated up in the Northern Territory, um, the Northern Territory government closed down 12, 12 schools throughout the Territory and there were no teaching jobs. And the only work I could get was actually in a childcare centre. And before then, I hadn't really been aware that they existed. I just, I just they weren't on my radar um, and so I thought I'll just do this. It was the kindy teacher in, a, in the um, over threes room and it was at Bachelor Institute in the Northern Territory. And I just stumbled into this job that I thought I'll just do until I can get a job in a school. And um, I have not looked back ever since. And that was such an amazing experience, that particular childcare centre that I worked at, at Bachelor Institute. It was um, um, the children at that childcare centre came from remote communities throughout the whole of the Northern Territory and the top of Western Australia and Queensland. And they came in with their parents who were studying at Bachelor. And um, in my class, I probably only had a very small handful of about eight or nine children that spoke English. And all the other children spoke languages from Aboriginal languages from the Northern Territory or whatever community they came from. So actually English speaking children were the minority. At times I only had one or two children who spoke English. And uh, I, 
I just loved it. I loved that I was with working with other Aboriginal women. Um, I just love these community kids and their cheekiness and the difference in culture to what I was, you know, to, to what I would see in schools in Darwin when I was doing relief teaching. Uh, I love that they had a sense of humour that was similar to mine and um, they taught me so much. Um, and I've just stayed in that space because, because I've just loved being with that, this particular age group um, and talking about this particular age group. Um, and the more my career has unfolded, um, I've just just um, learnt more about how important these early years are for laying a foundation for the rest of their life. Um, and then the older I get and the more I've learnt about culture, then I've also learnt about like, like that's those foundation years are not just important for learning about maths and reading and science and all that stuff, but also learning about your culture. Um, and I've loved listening to those women in those remote Aboriginal communities talking strongly about growing up their children strong in culture. And, and my whole career has been listening and learning to the other women around me. I feel like I've just been able to learn so much and you know sometimes I wonder about how much I'm putting out when I'm so busy learning <laughs> so much about culture and the importance of culture and yeah so it's you know certainly outside of high school it wasn't a deliberate progression that this is what I'm going to do or this is the path I'm going to take it was more like I stumbled into it and then here I am in it and I've grown my children up in it and I'm you know surrounded in it um the space of culture um I I did it outside of my work because it was what I had to do to be who, all of who I am. So I was practicing culture outside of my work, but I'd all, always had these two silos. There was my life outside of my professional or, you know, my school life, which was completely embedded in culture. And then there was what I did within my school life, which was completely separate for culture from culture. But as a professional, my opinion is that why do they need to be separated? Why did I have to have silos? Do we have to have these silos? Is there a place for coming in the middle and being in the, that middle space where we're all embracing each other's cultures? Reflecting on what each of these ladies shared about their experiences entering the industry, it seems almost like when they first started in their careers, this concept of thinking holistically was not always entirely accepted or applied in practice. So I asked them, now that you've been working in this industry for some time, do you think there is a shift in this mindset and is holistic ways of learning more widely accepted and is it now being widely applied? I don't know. I feel like... There are pockets in our sector where perhaps that is holistic learning is just how they do it and there are pockets where it hasn't occurred to them. And, you know, in, in my career when I was working in remote communities in the Northern Territory, those that holistic learning was just how it, those women did it. They, 
because it was connected so strongly to culture. And and culture was we had this image once that we that we tried to design where we had the child in the middle and we had all those educational de- the developmental domains of a child like cognitive development, fine motor, gross motor, social emotion, all of that. And then then we had another layer which was an aura, which was spirituality. And then I can't remember which way it went. It was like we had two auras. One aura was spirituality and the other aura was culture. But that was just how we did it. Um, Spirituality and culture was just one of those developmental domains. And within spirituality and culture was the family. So the child was in the middle. There were all these educational domains and that but surrounding all of that was spirituality culture and the family and it wasn't until I moved down south that I realized that that was actually unique <laughs> that was unique to where I was working at the time and I remember going to a um uh, one of my girls was in kindergarten and at the AGM they had a guest speaker come along and she was an educational early childhood educator and um she talked about four developmental domains. There are only four developmental domains. And I was like, hang on a sec, four? There's more than four. What? What is she talking about? And she just went cognitive, physical, social, emotional, and I don't know, whatever the fourth one was. Spirituality and culture was not, and the family were not even on the spectrum. Like they weren't even a feature there. And I just remember going home going, what just happened? <laughs> and then at the more I was a part of working in that state, I realised actually that's the norm down here. What I was with up there was unique, what's happening down here. And so then, but then I had to learn how to articulate it. So before then, it was just how we did it. I didn't have to articulate it. Everyone just knew it. And certainly those remote Aboriginal women that I worked with, culture and spirituality in the family was like the biggest thing of all that we would that they were working with their children. It was just how it was done. But I had to learn how to how to articulate it and how to verbalize it, not just let it come out of my being and what what we did. And, and that's been my biggest learning in the last 15 years of my career is learning how to articulate it. And I'm still learning how to articulate it. Rani was able to have this unique perspective because of her lived experience in multiple states. After she shared this insight, I asked everyone, why does this way of learning and thinking differ based on the state you live in? Is there a change in the ways our educators are currently being trained about the ways they understand the well-being of children, the way they interact with the world and their culture? And finally, what about the children who aren't living on their country? How do we ensure they stay connected to their culture? Look, I was really lucky to be um, work as part of University of Melbourne's First 1000 Days project. Hi listeners, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to share with you that as we reached this point in the conversation, Jackie started sharing about the project First 1000 Days. This is an absolutely beautiful project and there was a video that accompanied this 
I would love to share this video with you, but for the moment, we do have to get some permissions from community. So please be patient with us as we get these permissions. But as soon as it becomes available, I'll be linking it to this podcast episode on our social media platforms and also in the feature article, which is coming out in November. So please stay tuned. But for now, let's go back to Jackie to hear about this project in more depth. I, I did that for two years. I was the implementation manager for that. So I did the first 1,000 days training when I lived at, uh, when I lived, when I worked at CNK. They didn't want me to do it, but I, I really said, I want to do it. I was really firm. <laughs> and so I did. And it was there at that training that I realised that I wanted to work in this space. And I, because I, it was there that I, it, it just all made sense to me that, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, need to be wrapped in culture. They need to feel secure in culture. You know, mum and dad don't feel um, secure and wrapped in culture. Well, nor are their children going to be. Um, and that, you know, culture is knowing who they are, where they come from, um, what their language is, where they, um, you know, they're knowing and doing, all of that stuff. So, you know, I just knew that was where I was going to be. So I did for two years. I, I connected with families, with organisations, and we all worked really um, beautifully together. But one of the most amazing projects out of that, like it was a huge project, um, but the best part of it was the welcome baby to country and the welcome child to country. So one of my briefs was that we had to do welcome to country, a welcome baby to country. It had to be done during NAIDOC week. We had all of these, you know, measurable things that we had to do. But when I when I engaged with community, with the organisations that were on my welcome baby to country working group, it was quickly decided that hang on, we can't just welcome babies to country. What about the kids that are already there? Where is their connection to country? So we ended up with the welcome baby and the welcome child to country, didn't we? Because Jackie just has to, you know, go along with the flow and, and make work harder for myself. But um, it just made complete sense. So as part of the welcome baby and child to country, they were two separate events. Not, the first one was done during NAIDOC week because that was the brief. After that, it was it was separate because we just um, felt that NAIDOC takes away from um, the event that it really is. So we, you know, we've decided to do it separate. But the welcome babies, they got their kangaroo fur and they got their beautiful headbands that were made by the aunties in the community. They got their beautiful certificate. Families had um, um, it came to workshops just to find out about what the what it was and what the, the expectations were around them as families. We did cultural awareness training for them because even though you know generically it's done for non-indigenous people, but Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't know their history either. So often they don't know the trauma and the you know the intergenerational stuff that's happened down here before they're even born. So um, it was important for us to do that. Um, another part of it was council donated trees. And people didn't understand why I thought that was such a beautiful thing. I thought, trees, 
If the families can plant them in the park that the children have been welcomed onto country by the elder of that particular country, well, then that's something that they're going to come back and Mm. be connected to for the rest of their lives. So if that tree or shrub or plant, whatever it is, is planted there, then they can come on a Sunday and water and plant that tree. I mean, um, visit that tree or, you know, they can see it grow. So I felt that was a really important part of that because that would be a connection to the country that they'd been welcomed onto by um, the elder. Another part of that was many people said, how can they be welcomed on the country if it's not their country? And that was when I said, well, actually they might not ever get back to their country, depending on whether or not they know where they come from, know who their mob are on that on country, if they never get back there, at least they've been welcomed onto this country by a traditional owner and they can be connected here. So it's that thing about um, being invited, um, being respect respectful to the place that they live, work and play on. I feel that's that connection that a lot of our families are missing because they don't live on country. Some of them don't know where their country is and that's because of our, um, I'm going to say, twisted history, you know, what's happened in the past. Um, So, you know, I think it's really important for our kids today to be welcomed by the traditional owner of where they live so that they can be connected to that space. And I suppose the first 1,000 days, why it was so important for me to be involved was because I know those babies from the time before they're even conceived, that they choose the parent, that their parents, and they come into those parents' lives as a little embryo (laughs) and they plant themselves in their mother to then be carried for nine or ten months before they're born. And um, it became really evident to me that if mum and dad have got their traumas that they're bringing with them and even their ancestors or even their grandmother and father, like whatever that history is, because we know that a baby... Their DNA is affected by um, the history of their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, and often their great-great-great-grandparents. So it can be an eight-generational piece of that child's life. So if we can heal that and if we can ensure that mum and dad know their history, know who they are, where they come from, I feel that that's a start to heal the past and then they can start to heal themselves so that they can teach their babies and want to be a part of their babies' lives. So we need to get rid of that trauma for our babies from the time that they're conceived. One thing I find really frustrating after all the years I've been in this sector, and I've been in the sector since 92, so I I can't do the maths on my feet, 30 years nearly, Um, (laughs) and the stuff that we're talking about 
in relation to cultural awareness and providing culturally safe environments, we were still talking about in 92. Why are we still having these conversations in 2022, 21, 22? Why are we still having these conversations? Why aren't we at a deeper level? I don't understand why it's so hard and why it's Groundhog Day and and why isn't this moving? And it wasn't until I was doing TAFE as a TAFE teacher that I that I realised that when a, um, a person signs up to do the course, the units on inclusion were only electives, whether it's cultural inclusion or whether it's inclusion because of um, varying abilities. They were only electives. And so you only did those electives if you your TAFE or your RTO that you were studying with had them on their scope. And it wasn't until so, – so then there's a whole bunch of people that maybe they were more interested in the elective to do with science in early childhood or they were, you know, one of the other electives because, um, you know, the whole the – whole, group can't all do what the same you, you, you know you you have a certain number of people that can do it and it wasn't until July 2015 that it became one of the core units so before July 2015 anyone who had that qualification if you've only they've only got the unit on inclusion if they chose it as an elective. So there's this massive gap in in knowledge out there that we're still working, which is the reason that our business exists, one of the reasons, because we're back training people who didn't get that knowledge when they were going through their course. And, and, you know, there's political reasons as well why it's not supported and the money fell out of our particular space or, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of factors in, in influencing that. But, you know, that just just that one little reason because I didn't do it as an elective when I was studying has a massive effect on the culturally diverse or Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander children that turn up in our early childhood services. I think it even goes back before that too, Ranu, you know, when we do the cultural awareness training, the amount of educators that are just so upset that there's so many mixed emotions. So it's they're upset, they're angry, and they don't know why. They didn't know our history. Yeah. So, yes. Know, it, it, it just, it, I can right. never fathom how... Um, but when when I do the training, I say, you know, this is not about blame because we can't blame anybody for what happened. It just happened too long ago. But if we can make people aware of it so that then they understand why they do it, so um, why they need to embed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives into their, their um, practice. And I think the other thing then is... Um, you're right, they don't do it at university. But even if they do do it at university, they don't have the right people teaching it. Yes, <laughs> that's so, right. You know, that's another huge gap. And I think um, universities, TAFEs, um, education, they all need to work together 
So, you know, you can see that I'm big about collaboration and bringing everybody, like everybody having the full picture about what it is we're doing, why we're doing it and how we're going to do it. If Education Queensland, the universities, the TAFE, the RTOs, if all of those people had guidelines or knew why, embedding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islands was so so, um, important, Mm. then our whole journey, we wouldn't even have a job. Yeah. No? And wouldn't that be beautiful? If we didn't have a job to do this, that would be probably a dream of mine because I want my kids, my grannies, to feel comfy when they go into those services. And that they can, all of who they are is celebrated. All of who they are. Not just on NAIDOC Day or not just on Harmony Day, if you're lucky enough to be in a school that even acknowledges it in the first place. But every day, all of who they are is celebrated. And how different would the sector be if it was at every stage of life and not just when you're a qualified education consultant on now we're going to teach you about embedding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives um, but what if that was in every day, like we just saw the, the welcoming babies to country and what happens if when they go into primary school, they're very um, aware of that, um, the fact that they are visitors on land and how can we be a community and then going into high school and then into university instead of being an adult going, why am I angry? It's like you're angry because you've never had to consult with these people, with this knowledge before. And, in fact, before Welcome to Country, when you're birthed, you're mm. born into your culture. And I'm, I've just made connections with some women who are doing that work in that space, the birthing space, and, and where babies are being born into the songs of their culture. Mm. Um, like I think I might have been much calmer during my birthing experiences if I'd had the knowledge or the, if I knew that I was going to be wrapped in my culture during that experience, that birth experience, which I found terrifying. I found it in completely terrifying every time I gave birth. Um, but if I had strong women of my culture beside me, I think that I think that would have been a really different experience, not just for me, but for that baby coming. Yeah, it's the it's the holistic view and the wraparound care. I think that you know I keep coming back to, and because you know you're constantly having to talk about it and teach others about it because people can't see that that view. And we've talked about it before, you know, about the individual hey, view. And yes. the, yeah, and the community, yeah, collectiveness as well. That I see a lot of conflict in that in you know almost everyday interactions when you're in meetings and, and doing all of this online work. Uh, that you're having people come from that individualistic view, so they don't understand how you know we should be you know, respectful and talking good way to other people and, you know, and thinking about what's happening for them in their homes, in their workplaces, families, 
you know, we're just thinking about us and let's get to our outcome. Mm. So I see a lot of educators, you know, burning out then because they're trying to run like this when our sector should be like this. And the families are then getting run down and burnt out because they're not thinking about who else is there for them to support them as well. And, yeah, and what Rana was saying about connecting with others, connecting with your tribe, connecting with your community is so important. Um, you know, we, I moved around Australia quite a lot with my children, so I was always searching for who is there for me and my children, mm. where can see culture and hear culture and be a part of that wherever we move to. And um, and I guess it was something for me that I learned quickly that if I can't find anybody then at least once a year I have to take my children home to be surrounded by that, to be connected in that and to, you know, to fill their cup, we'll say, you know, um, so that they can see it and be a part of it every day. And I guess that's something that, you know, I try to create in my um, in my teachings and my sessions with educators, you know, that, that, that little bit there you have to recreate for those children and families, even if they don't know their family, where they come from um, and have connected you have to recreate that for them, for them, so that they they fill their cup. They feel they're like they, they are, who they belong to in their identity. And, you know, that cup is there whether you've, whether you've had your culture passed on to you or not. Sometimes you just don't know that there's a cup there and you don't know that it's empty and you're looking for it and you don't know what you're looking for. You just know that you're looking for something. And I remember um, my dad talking about that as a principal of the Aboriginal College in Adelaide in the 70s and that a lot of the students he was working with were looking for something because these are stolen gen mob. They were looking for something but didn't know what it was that they were looking for. Um, oh, you know, they knew they were looking for their pet family, but but it was it was not just looking for that family. It was looking for culture. Um, mm. yeah. yeah. I I once had a foster carer reach out to me when and my business and said, you know, what do I do? What do I do? I have these Torres Strait Island children with me. And I think she was based in Melbourne, um, no, Adelaide, you know, and I said, you know, you underestimate your your abilities, you know, as a carer for these children. And the first thing I said to her was like, thank you for taking our children. Oh, makes me tear up. <laughs> but the second thing I said to her was, you know, connection to the sea, hey, one tiny, tiny thing that those children will have this natural ability to connect to the sea. And I said, that's what you need to do is, you know, have have that for them. doesn't matter where you are, where you're living, they'll have this connection to the sea that they need to have. Yes. Yeah. I think that's um, why it's so important even for, you know, our um, all of our children but, you know, our Aboriginal children that are in care as well, um, especially when they have been part of the stolen generation and their families are just struggling so much. They're then given to carers and they're not even, often they're not even kept with their siblings. I remember when I was in Townsville and I worked at um, Weir State School, we had um, this beautiful little family of three little girls, might have been four girls actually, it was four girls. Um, they were taken from their mum and they were all put into separate 
foster homes. And um, mm-hmm. one little, the little one in grade one, Alicia, her name was, um, she'd come to school and she'd be so sad, mm-hmm. be sad every day. And and her, her other siblings were as sad as she was. And... Um, because she just had so many behavioural issues, she just played up really badly. Um, my husband and I, or my me, probably, but I talked him into <laughs> I talked him into the possibility of fostering this child and and having her a part of their family. It took. I had to get Cara, my eldest girl had to get a, a blue card, my husband had to get a blue card. You know, we all had to do this training and it took them that long, um, child safety, to do um, all of the whatever they had to do, um, that it was just too long and we, we gave up. Um, and that, But that little girl, I just really worry and wonder what happened to her in her teenage years. She's probably a mum now. Um, but, you know, I think there's still a lot that child safety can do better for our children that are in care to ensure that they stay with their siblings because, you know, their family has already been part of the stolen generation mm-hmm. with whatever you know, in whatever stage it was. So if it wasn't their mother and father, it could possibly be their grandparents or their great-grandparents. So they've got to do that better for our babies. And is there systems in place that say if you are going to be a foster parent who is going to look after Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander children, then you are required to ensure that you keep that child connected to their culture? some point when that child is an adult, they're going to need that connection to be connected again, but they may not know what they're looking for. And and that, and this person will be this disconnected person that is seeking this thing that they don't know what they're seeking. Hi, listeners. Our conversation continues in part three of this episode. We delve into the recommendations we would make on a state and federal government level to implement change into the education sector. We'll see you there.